be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 41 and 42 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers had found themselves ascending quickly on their raft from the centre of the earth. In tonight's story, they struggle to deal with their increasing hunger. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 41 Hunger Hunger, prolonged, is temporary madness. The brain is at work without its required food, and the most fantastic notions fill the mind. Hitherto, I had never known what hunger really meant. I was likely to understand it now. And yet, three months before, I could tell my terrible story of starvation, as I thought it. As a boy, I used to make frequent excursions in the neighbourhood of the professor's house. My uncle always acted on system, and he believed that, in addition to the day of rest and worship, there should be a day of recreation. In consequence, I was always free to do as I liked on Wednesday. Now, as I had a notion to combine the useful and the agreeable, my favourite pastime was birds nesting. I had one of the best collections of eggs in all the town. They were classified and under glass cases. There was a certain wood which, by rising at early morning and taking the cheap train, I could reach at eleven in the morning. Here I would botanise or geologise at my will. My uncle was always glad of specimens for his herbarium and stones to examine. When I had filled my wallet, I proceeded to search for nests. 
After about two hours of hard work, I, one day, sat down by a stream to eat my humble but copious lunch. How the remembrance of the spiced sausage, the wheaten loaf, and the beer made my mouth water now. I would have given every prospect of worldly wealth for such a meal. But to my story. While seated thus at my leisure, I looked up at the ruins of an old castle at no great distance. It was the remains of a historical dwelling, ivy-clad and now falling to pieces. While looking, I saw two eagles circling about the summit of a lofty tower. I soon became satisfied that there was a nest. Now, in all my collection, I lacked eggs of the native eagle and the large owl. My mind was made up. I would reach the summit of that tower or perish in the attempt. I went nearer and surveyed the ruins. The old staircase, years before, had fallen in. The outer walls, however, were intact. There was no chance that way, unless I looked to the ivy solely for support. This was, as I soon found out, futile. There remained the chimney, which still went up to the top, and had once served to carry off the smoke from every story of the tower. Up this, I determined to venture. It was narrow, rough, and therefore the more easily climbed. I took off my coat and crept into the chimney. Looking up, I saw a small, light opening, proclaiming the summit of the chimney. Up, up I went, for some time using my hands and knees, after the fashion of a chimney sweep. It was slow work, but there being continually projections, the task was comparatively easy. In this way, I reached the halfway. The chimney now became narrower. The atmosphere was close. And at last, to end the matter, I stuck fast. I could ascend no higher. There could be no doubt of this, and there remained no resource but to descend and give up my glorious prey in despair. I yielded to fate and endeavoured to descend, but I could not move. Some unseen and mysterious obstacle intervened and stopped me. In an instant, the full horror of my situation seized me. I was unable to move either way and was doomed to a terrible and horrible death, that of starvation. In a boy's mind, however, 
there is an extraordinary amount of elasticity and hope, and I began to think of all sorts of plans to escape. In the first place, I required no food just at present, having had an excellent meal, and was therefore allowed time for reflection. My first thought was to try and move the mortar with my hand. Had I possessed a knife, something might have been done, but that useful instrument I had left in my coat pocket. I soon found that all efforts of this kind were vain and useless, and that all I could hope to do was to wriggle downwards. But though I jerked and struggled and strove to turn, it was all in vain. I could not move an inch, one way or the other, and time flew rapidly. My early rising probably contributed to the fact that I felt sleepy, and gradually gave way to the sensation of drowsiness. I slept and awoke in darkness, ravenously hungry. Night had come, and still I could not move. I was tight-bound, and did not succeed in changing my position an inch. I groaned aloud. Never since the days of my happy childhood, when it was a hardship to go from meal to meal without eating, had I really experienced hunger. The sensation was as novel as it was painful. I began now to lose my head and to scream and cry out in my agony. Something appeared, startled by my noise. It was a harmless lizard, but it appeared to me a loathsome reptile. Again, I made the old ruins resound with my cries, and finally, so exhausting myself, I fainted. How long I lay in a kind of trance or sleep, I cannot say. But when again I recovered consciousness, it was day. How ill I felt. How hunger still gnawed at me. It would be hard to say. I was too weak to scream now. Far too weak to struggle. Suddenly... I was startled by a roar. Are you there, Henry? said the voice of my uncle. Are you there, my boy? I could only faintly respond, but I also made a desperate effort to turn. Some mortar fell. To this I owed my being discovered. When the search took place, it was easily seen that mortar and small pieces of stone had recently fallen from above. Hence my uncle's cry. Be calm, he cried. If we pull down the whole ruin, you shall be saved. They were delicious words, but I had little hope. 
About quarter of an hour later, I heard a voice above me at one of the upper fireplaces. Are you below or above? Below was my reply. In an instant, a basket was lowered with milk, a biscuit and an egg. My uncle was fearful to be too ready with his supply of food. I drank the milk first, for thirst had nearly deadened my hunger. I then, much refreshed, ate my bread and hard egg. They were now at work at the wall. I could hear a pickaxe. Wishing to escape all danger from this terrible weapon, I made a desperate struggle, and the belt, which surrounded my waist and which had hitched on a stone, gave way. I was free, and only escaped falling down by a rapid motion of my hands and knees. In ten minutes more, I was in my uncle's arms, after being two days and nights in that horrible prison. My occasional delirium prevented me from counting time. I was weeks recovered from that awful starvation adventure, and yet what was that to the hideous sufferings I now endured? After dreaming for some time, and thinking of this and other matters, I once more looked around me. We were still ascending with fearful rapidity. Every now and then, the air appeared to check our respiration, as it does that of aeronauts when the ascension of the balloon is too rapid. But if they feel a degree of cold in the proportion to the elevation they attain in the atmosphere, we experienced quite a contrary effect. The heat began to increase in a most threatening and exceptional manner. I cannot tell exactly the mean, but I think it must have reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit. What was the meaning of this extraordinary change in temperature? As far as we had hitherto gone, facts had proved the theories of Davy and Lindenbrock to be correct. Until now, all the peculiar conditions of refractory rocks, of electricity, of magnesium, had modified the general laws of nature and had created for us a moderate temperature, for the theory of the central fire remained, in my eyes, the only explainable one. Were we then going to reach a position in which these phenomena were to be carried out in all their rigour, and in which the heat would reduce the rocks to a state of fusion? Such was my not unnatural fear, and I did not conceal the fact from my uncle. My way of doing so might be cold and heartless, but I could not help it. If we are not drowned, 
or smashed into pancakes. And if we do not die of starvation, we have the satisfaction of knowing that we must perish by heat. My uncle, in presence of his brusque attack, simply shrugged his shoulders and resumed his reflections, whatever they might be. An hour passed away, and except that there was a slight increase in the temperature, no incident modified the situation. My uncle at last, of his own accord, broke silence. Well, Henry, my boy, he said in a cheerful way, we must make up our minds. Make up our minds to what? I asked in a considerable surprise. Well, to something. We must at whatever risk recruit our physical strength. If we make the fatal mistake of husbanding our little remnant of food, we may probably prolong our wretched existence a few hours, but we shall remain weak to the end. Yes, I growled, to the end. That, however, will not keep us long waiting. Well, only let a chance of safety present itself. Only allow that a moment of action be necessary. Where shall we find the means of action if we allow ourselves to be reduced to physical weakness by inanition? When this piece of meat is devoured, uncle, what hope will there remain unto us? None, my dear Henry, none. But will it do you any good to devour it with your eyes? You appear to me to reason like one without will or decision, like a being without energy. Then, cried I, exasperated to a degree which it is scarcely able to be explained, you do not mean to tell me that you, that you, have not lost all hope. Certainly not, replied the professor with consummate coolness. You mean to tell me, uncle, that we shall get out of this monstrous subterranean shaft. While there is life, there is hope. I beg to assert, Henry, that as long as a man's heart beats, as long as a man's flesh quivers, I do not allow that a being gifted with thought and will can allow himself to despair. What a nerve! The man placed in a position like that we occupied must have been very brave to speak like this. Well, I cried, what do you mean to do? Eat what remains of the food we have in our hands. Let us swallow the last crumb. It will bell haven willing, our last repast. Well, never mind. Instead of being exhausted skeletons, we shall be men. True, muttered I in a despairing tone. Let us take our fill. We must, 
replied my uncle with a deep sigh. Call it what you will. My uncle took a piece of the meat that remained and some crusts of biscuit which had escaped the wreck. He divided the whole into three parts. Each had one pound of food to last him as long as he remained in the interior of the earth. Each now acted in accordance with his own private character. My uncle, the professor, ate greedily, but evidently without appetite, eating simply from some mechanical motion. I put the food inside my lips, and hungry as I was, chewed my morsel without pleasure, and without satisfaction. Hans, the guide, just as if he had been eider down hunting, swallowed every mouthful, as though it were a usual affair. He looked like a man equally prepared to enjoy superfluity or total want. Hans, in all probability, was no more used to starvation than ourselves, but his hard Icelandic nature had prepared him for many sufferings. As long as he received his three rix dollars every Saturday night, he was prepared for anything. The fact was, Hans never troubled himself about much except his money. He had undertaken to serve a certain man at so much per week, and no matter what evils befell his employer or himself, he never found fault or grumbled, so long as his wages were duly paid. Suddenly, my uncle roused himself. He had seen a smile on the face of our guide. I could not make it out. What is the matter? said my uncle. She them, said the guide, producing a bottle of precious fluid. We drank. My uncle and myself were loaned to our dying day, that hence we derived strength to exist until the last bitter moment. That precious bottle of Hollands was in reality only half full, but under the circumstances, it was nectar. It took some minutes for myself and my uncle to form a decided opinion on the subject. The worthy professor swallowed about half a pint and did not seem able to drink any more. Fort Rufig, said Hans, swallowing nearly all that was left. Excellent, very good, said my uncle, with as much gusto as if he had just left the steps of the club at Hamburg. I had begun to feel as if there had been one gleam of hope. Now all thought of the future vanished. We had consumed our last ounce of food, and it was five o'clock in the morning. Chapter 42 The Volcanic Shaft Man's constitution is so peculiar that his health is purely a negative matter. 
No sooner is the rage of hunger appeased than it becomes difficult to comprehend the meaning of starvation. It is only when you suffer that you really understand. As to anyone who has not endured privation, having any notion of the matter, it is simply absurd. With us, after a long fast, come mouthfuls of bread and meat, a little mouldy biscuit and salt beef triumphed over all our previous gloomy and saturnine thoughts. Nevertheless, after this repast, each gave way to his own reflections. I wondered what were those of Hans, the man of the extreme north, who was yet gifted with the fatalistic resignation of oriental character. But the utmost stretch of the imagination would not allow me to realise the truth. As for my individual self, my thoughts had ceased to be anything but memories of the past, and were all connected with that upper world which I should never have left. I saw it all now, the beautiful house in the Conistrasse, my poor Gretchen, the good Martha. They all passed before my mind like visions of the past. Every time any of the lugubrious groanings which were to be distinguished in the hollows around fell upon my ears, I fancied I heard the distant murmur of the great cities above my head. As for my uncle, always thinking of his science, he examined the nature of the shaft by means of torch. He closely examined the different strata, one above the other, in order to recognise his situation by geological theory. This calculation, or rather this estimation, could be by no means anything but approximate. But a learned man, a philosopher, is nothing if not a philosopher when he keeps his ideas calm and collected. And certainly the professor possessed this quality to perfection. I heard him, as I sat in silence, murmuring words of geological science. As I understood his object and his meaning, I could not but interest myself despite my preoccupation in that terrible hour. Eruptive granite, he said to himself. We are still in the primitive epoch, but we are going up, going up still. But who knows, who knows? Then he still hoped. He felt along the vertical sides of the shaft with his hand and some few minutes later he would go on again in the following style. This is genus. This is mica schist siliceous mineral. Good again. This is the epoch of transition. At all events, we are close to them. And then, and then. What could the professor mean? Could he by any conceivable means, 
measure the thickness of the crust of the earth suspended above our heads. Did he possess any possible means of making any approximation to this calculation? No. The manometer was wanting, and no summary estimation could take the place of it. And yet, as we progressed, the temperature increased in the most extraordinary degree, and I began to feel as if I were bathed in a hot and burning atmosphere. Never before had I felt anything like it. I could only compare it to the hot vapour from an iron foundry, when the liquid iron is in a state of ebullition and runs over. By degrees, and one after the other, Hans, my uncle, and myself had taken off our coats and waistcoats. They were unbearable. Even the slightest garment was not only uncomfortable, but the cause of extreme suffering. Are we ascending to a living fire? I cried, when, to my horror and astonishment, the heat became greater than before. No, no, said my uncle. It is simply impossible quite impossible. And yet, said I, touching the sides of the shaft with my naked hand, this wall is literally burning. At this moment, feeling as it did that the sides of the extraordinary wall were red hot, I plunged my hands into the water to cool them. I drew them back with a cry of despair. The water is boiling, I cried. My uncle, the professor, made no reply other than a gesture of rage and despair. Something very like the truth had probably struck his imagination. But I could take no share in either what was going on or in his speculations. An invincible dread had taken possession of my brain and soul. I could only look forward to an immediate catastrophe, such a catastrophe as not even the most vivid imagination could have thought of. An idea, at first vague and uncertain, was gradually being changed into certainty. I tremulously rejected it at first, but it forced itself upon me by degrees with extreme obstinacy. It was so terrible an idea that I scarcely dared to whisper it to myself. And yet, all the while certain, and as it were, involuntary observations, determined my convictions. By the doubtful glare of the torch, I could make out some singular changes in the granitic strata. A strange and terrible phenomenon was about to be produced, in which electricity played a part. Then this boiling water, this terrible and excessive heat. I determined as a last resource to examine the compass. The compass had gone mad. Yes, 
wholly stark staring mad. The needle jumped from pole to pole with sudden and surprising jerks, ran round, or as it is said, boxed the compass, and then ran suddenly back again as if it had the vertigo. I was aware that, according to the best acknowledged theories, it was a received notion that the mineral crust of the globe is never and never has been in a state of complete repose. It is perpetually undergoing the modifications caused by the decomposition of the internal matter, the agitation consequent on the flowing of extensive liquid currents, the extensive action of magnetism which tends to shake it incessantly at a time when even the multitudinous beings on its surface did not suspect the seething process to be going on. Still this phenomenon would not have alarmed me alone. It would not have aroused in my mind a terrible, an awful idea. But other facts could not allow my self-delusion to last. Terrible detonations like heaven's artillery, began to multiply themselves with fearful intensity. I could only compare them with the noise made by hundreds of heavily laden chariots being madly driven over a stone pavement. It was a continuous roll of heavy thunder. And then the mad compass, shaken with the wild electricity phenomena, confirmed me in my rapidly formed opinion. The mineral crust was about to burst. The heavy granite masses were about to rejoin. The fissure was about to close. The void was about to be filled up, and we poor atoms to be crushed in its awful embrace. Uncle. Uncle, I cried, we are wholly, irretrievably lost. What then, my young friend, is your new cause of terror and alarm, he said in his calmest manner. What fear you now? What do I fear now, I cried in fierce and angry tones. Do you not see that the walls of the shaft are in motion? Do you not see that the solid granite masses are cracking? Do you not feel the terrible, torrid heat? Do you not observe the awful boiling water on which we float? Do you not remark this mad needle? Every sign and portent of an awful earthquake. My uncle coolly shook his head. An earthquake, he replied, in the most calm and provoking tone. Yes. My nephew, I tell you that you are utterly mistaken, he continued. Do you not, can you not, recognize all the well-known symptoms of an earthquake, by no means. 
I am expecting something far more important. My brain is strained beyond endurance. What do you mean? I cried. An eruption, Harry. An eruption? I gasped. We are then in the volcanic shaft of a crater in full action and vigour. I have every reason to think so, said the professor in a smiling tone. And I beg to tell you that it is the most fortunate thing that could have happened to us. The most fortunate thing. Had my uncle really and truly gone mad? What did he mean by these awful words? What did he mean by this terrible calm? This solemn smile. What, cried I, in the height of my exasperation. We are on the way to an eruption, are we? Fatality has cast us into a well of burning and boiling lava, of rocks and fire, of boiling water, in a word, filled with every kind of eruptive matter. We are about to be expelled, thrown up, vomited, spit out of the interior of the earth, in common with huge blocks of granite, with showers of cinders and scori, in a wild whirlwind of flame. And you say, the most fortunate thing which could happen to us. Yes, replied the professor looking at me calmly from under his spectacles. It is the only chance which remains to us of ever escaping the interior of the earth to the light of day. It is quite impossible that I can put on paper the thousand strange, wild thoughts which followed this extraordinary announcement. My uncle was right, quite right and never had he appeared to me so audacious and so convinced as when he looked me calmly in the face and spoke of the chances of an eruption, of our being cast upon Mother Earth once more through the gaping crater of a volcano. Nevertheless, while we were speaking, we were still ascending. We were passing the whole night going up or, to speak more scientifically, in an essential motion. The fearful noise redoubled. I was ready to suffocate. I seriously believed that my last hour was approaching. And yet, so strange is imagination. All I thought of was some childish hypothesis or other. In such circumstances, you do not choose your own thoughts. They overcome you. It was quite evident that we were being cast upwards by eruptive matter. Under the raft there was a mass of boiling water, and under this was a heavier mass of lava and an aggregate of rocks which, on reaching the summit of the water, would be dispersed in every direction. That we were inside the chimney of a volcano 
there could no longer be a shadow of a doubt. Nothing more terrible could be conceived. But on this occasion, instead of Sneffels, an old and extinct volcano, we were inside a mountain of fire in full activity. Several times I found myself asking, what mountain was it, and on what part of the world we should be shot out, as if it were of any consequence? In the northern regions, there could be no reasonable doubt about that. Before it went decidedly mad, the compass had never made the slightest mistake. From the Cape of Saknesem, we had been swept away to the northward, many hundreds of leagues. Now the question was, were we once more under Iceland? Should we be belched forth onto the earth through the crater of Mount Hecla? Or should we reappear through one of the other seven fire funnels of the island?